0: We're going to be looking at our second chapter in 2 Corinthians today. So if you would, turn in your bulletins. It's right there under the uh, Lord's Prayer, in fact. Um, But before we look at that, um, you remember how I told you that 2 Corinthians is probably one of the most intimate letters that the Apostle Paul has written. There's a lot of grief, a lot of pain, there's a lot of angst and anguish in this letter. It's because he loved them. Because he loved the Corinthian people who were a mess, just like you and I are a mess. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote this. It's a chapter that you and I are well aware of. We hear it read in weddings. But Paul is writing in a particular context of particular people who are struggling, who have a lot of issues, if you will. And what does he write in 1 Corinthians 13? He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. You see, the miraculous gift of tongues had had overtaken people that, wow, if you could speak in tongues, man, you must be really, really spiritual. And Paul's saying, that's not the greatest gift. greatest gift is love. And then he goes on in verse 2, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Remember, we talked about in Corinth, there were some super apostles that were in Corinth who were saying, Paul is a loser. Look at Paul, he's got scars on his back because he's a loser. Follow us because we are eloquent when we speak, and we are powerful. And Paul's saying, that's not where love is found either. He goes on, he says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. And so even self-sacrifice can be devoid of, of love, can it? If we lay down our lives so that other people can say, man, that person's really awesome, but we don't have love, Paul says, you're nothing. He says love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, the Apostle Paul, in his relationship with Corinth, had the opportunity to live it out. And you and I can speak a good game about love. But when it comes to roost, when that person that grates on your nerves is sitting next to you, when that neighbor who annoys you, God's giving you an opportunity to live out First Corinthians 13. He's giving you the opportunity to say, "You spit a good game about love, but when it comes to really loving, you don't really get it. I don't really get it." You see, there's a movie that uh, Ashley and I really like, uh, more so Ashley. I've grown to like it, called The Notebook. Uh, if you've seen it, it's a Nicholas Sparks movie, and uh, we watch it periodically, maybe once a month or so. And in that, uh, Noah, who is this really cute guy, uh, says this. The best, I, I can't do the southern accent, I'm sorry. Uh, the best love is the kind that awakens the soul, that makes us reach for more, that plants a fire in our hearts and brings peace to our minds. And you and I would say, Yeah, that's that's love. And so you see this movie, and sure enough, they are in love. It brings fire to their bellies and they're like, they're they're all about it. And we can romanticize love, we can talk about it a lot, and we can make it sound flowery and very ooh, wow, man, that's beautiful. But we forget that the flowery kind of love demands sweat and toil and tears. It demands us till up the ground. It demands that we go out and we, we mow down the weeds and we go and we pick the weeds. It, it requires work. It requires sweat because this is what he also said. He says this. these two people didn't agree on much. In fact, they rarely agreed on anything. They fought all the time. And they challenged each other every day. But despite their differences... They had one important thing in common. They were crazy about each other. So these two star-crossed lovers, and that's the beauty of this, of this movie, is that we, we, we can think about the romanticism, but we forget that, man, they fought. And, and you and I, in our relationships with one another, that's where the rubber hits the road, is that we can say, man, I really want community. I want to be known by somebody. I want to know other people. And then you get to know people, and you run away. And I run away or we clam up. And God says, I'm giving you an opportunity to love and to be loved. I'm giving you opportunity to, to, to give blood, sweat, and tears to this thing called love that Paul just talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. So let me ask you this. What did you come here for this morning? Why did you come to church? Why do you go to church? Why are you thinking about going to church next week? What are you after? Is it just something we do day after day, Sunday after Sunday? Is it something we're supposed to do? Brothers and sisters, I I would say that the reason that you and I go to church, you and I suffer with each other and want to suffer with each other is because we want more of God. That's what our deepest longings are. We want the fire in our belly that Noah was talking about. We want love and the the ultimate kind of love that you and I are after is a love that only God can produce. And so we sweat and we toil and we work here in our relationships with one another because God is to be found there. He's going to be found in the pain and the suffering. But it takes a lot of weeding. It takes a lot of Fertilizer takes a lot of manure type of fertilizer, and it takes a lot of work. It takes opening up our wounds, letting the soil of our heart being tilled, so then all of that junk in our lives might be used to bring forth flowers of love in other people's lives. So in our passage today, Paul is going to talk to the Corinthians He's going to tell the Corinthians why he didn't come back. And and I think in this passage, we can see several things about what love is. What love is. But before I read it, let me just give you a little context here. That Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in Ephesus. So if I had a map, you'd hear right here in modern-day Turkey in the western side. So he was in Ephesus when he wrote 1 Corinthians. He sent 1 Corinthians over here to Corinth through Timothy. And his plan was to go up to Macedonia, become town to Corinth, and then go back to Jerusalem. So he's here in Ephesus, wrote 1 Corinthians. Timothy came back, he said, oh my goodness, Paul, it's a mess. And so Paul changed his plans and he went over to Corinth. It was a bad visit. It was a really bad visit. And so he went and he was being accused by these super apostles. And he was embarrassed and he left. And he went up to Macedonia. He went up here to the north. And then he sent this second letter, this second letter of rebuke to them that that he alludes to in 2 Corinthians 7. We don't have that letter, um, and there's various reasons why, but um, we don't have that letter. And in that letter of rebuke, Paul says, I was sorry that I sent it. But there's something good that came from it, because he was actually planning on going back down to Corinth a third time, or After Macedonia is going to go to Corinth, he decided just to go right to Jerusalem. And this is why. Because he loved. He loved them. And if you want to get a little bit more context, I encourage you to read Acts 19 and 20. That gives you a little bit of context of Ephesus, Macedonia, that that whole group right there that Paul is dealing with. But Paul says, why didn't I come to you? It's not because I was scared. It's not because I was afraid. It's because I loved you. And so he writes in 2 Corinthians 1, a couple verses right before our passage today, he says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, like super apostles might, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he, he, he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote... That I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not... Like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. If you and I are going to experience real community, real love, we need to come to understand that love is very different than the world would define it as. And we see here several points. Namely, first of all, that love shows restraint. Love shows restraint. Paul says in verse 1, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. You see, Paul had planned on visiting Corinth on his way to Jerusalem. But for the sake of love, for the sake of love, he changed his plans. He didn't barrel on and say, man, they're going to they're going to have to get over this because I'm going to come to Corinth. I'm going to set them straight. I love them. I love them in truth. And I'm going to hit them with the truth because I love them so much. No, Paul says, you know what? I, I don't want to hurt you anymore. And so I'm just going to go on my way to Jerusalem. You see, when there's a rift in your relationships with other people, do you want to try to fix them all? In fact, last week we had a, a great conversation uh, in our community group about conflict. And uh, to, put, to paint it put, it, put it broadly, there are two kinds of people. Those who run away from conflict... And those who run into conflict, you may know a few of those folks that love a little bit of drama in their life. And so Paul is saying, if you're that kind of person that likes to run into drama to fix everybody, to to just set it straight, you need to realize that love shows restraint. Love shows restraint. And restraint requires you to carry the burden. Restraint requires you to shoulder the load, to not say, I'm just gonna fix this with a text message. I'm gonna send this email, I'm gonna call them up right now, and we are gonna get this settled. No. Love says, I will bear this weight, I will suffer this weight until a proper time. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, we read a moment ago, love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. And this is not what Paul's talking about. I did. I really wanted to go to Corinth, but you know what? I'm going to change my plans because I love you. Love shows restraint. Secondly, we see that love is painful. True love, biblical love, is painful. In these, in these first seven verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this root word for pain, in case you didn't see it in the English, is eight times in these seven verses. He is hammering about. There is a lot of pain going on. A lot of grief. And this is the kind of pain that we experience when someone dies. Someone's left our lives. A sense of loss. A feeling that we no longer have a part of us with us. And you see, there's 150,000 people that die every day in the world, but it's the ones that we love that pains us the most. We don't give a lot of credence to the 149,999. It's the one person that we love that pains us, that hurts us deep inside. And, and and when someone hurts us, when someone hurts us in relationship, instead of understanding that this is part of God's design for true relationship to happen, we run away from it. In fact, I knew a guy not too long ago who um, he didn't share a lot. You'd say, hey, how are you doing? Hey, I know something's going on in your life. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about that? And he, he would not clam up. In fact, he would go to his wife and say, hey, um, we're not going back to that church. Hey, we're not, I don't like Matt anymore because he uh, pries a little too much. And all I was doing was asking, hey, how are you doing? And the tendency, and this person, instead of understanding that this is an opportunity for someone to come in and love you, this person wanted to keep to themselves. And he never realized that the point of the Christian life is to open up our lives and let other people till up the soil, the hardened soil a lot of times in our lives. To let the balm of Gilead heal us. You see, each day we're in a battle. We're in a battle with our own sin. We're in a battle with the sins of others. We get beat up. We get frustrated in life. Work is not what we thought it was going to be. We get hurt by words. We get hurt by people's looks. But see, when we gather together as a church, this is God's means for us to be healed. Have you ever gotten cut really badly? And what do you do? You put hydrogen peroxide or alcohol on it, and it stings. But that's the very thing that heals you. Is the stinging, and th- these relationships that we have with one another will hurt. They're supposed to hurt. They're supposed to have a cleansing effect on us. And so, instead of running away from those conversations, instead of saying, "Man, I don't like that person because they asked me how I was doing," you say, "I'm going to press into that. I'm going to, I'm going to say it. I'm not doing so hot. I'm really frustrated right now." I don't like my job. You see, that's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place where healing happens. But it doesn't happen just by putting a band-aid on the wound. It comes by cleaning the wound out, by opening up your life to other people. Thirdly, love is not only painful, but it confronts. Love does confront. So if you find that you were in the boat of, of wanting to run into conflict and you're like, hey, Matt, Matt Matt's not going to say anything about me that runs away from conflict. Well, in our text, I'm not just picking on you, in our text it shows that love also confronts. Love also confronts. See, Paul sent a harsh letter. And we heard about it in 2 Corinthians 7 like I've already mentioned a moment ago. And he regretted sending that letter at the time is what he says in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 7. See, Timothy had brought word to Paul that, that they... There was fighting going on in Corinth. And Paul said, I am, I, that, that, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Look at verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He wrote them a hard letter because he loved them. Because he loved them. But see, confrontation doesn't look like yelling. It doesn't look like getting all tensed up and getting tight in the neck. That's not what confrontation is. That's not how Paul is writing. He's, he's writing, bearing all these things, and he is. You can almost imagine that there are tears dripping on the letter as he's sending it. I didn't want to send this letter, but I love you too much to not send this letter. Because look at verses 5 through 11. It makes it clear that forgiveness... Forgiveness is the undercurrent of any confrontation that we have. Extending of forgiveness, but it doesn't just say I'm going to forgive them whether they think whether they ask for it or not. No, this is talking about a forgiveness that's deeper rooted in our own hearts. We start with our own personal need for forgiveness. We start with the assumption that I too have hurt people. We start with the assumption that, man, you know what? They hurt me, but you know what? I hurt people every day. I offend other people, knowingly and unknowingly. And so you start with that assumption that, man, you need forgiveness. Then how can you come with both guns barreling on someone? You come and you say, you know what? This hurt me when you said this. And I'm sure you didn't mean to say this. We start with the assumption that I am not innocent. There's a speck in your eye, but there's a log in my own eye. I not only have a lapse in judgment, but I run headlong into self-justification and self-congratulatory living. I love to make sure that people know that I'm right. You find that you're in that boat too. So instead of saying, I forgive you, you find yourself saying, I'm right. You see, secondly, in confrontation, it assumes the best about someone. It assumes the best about someone when you come to someone to confront them. It's not just a matter of I'm going to set them straight saying, hey, I may, have, I may have taken this wrong. Because if you're like me, I can stir myself up into an ignorant tizzy. I know that they knew that they slighted me. I know that they, they meant that when they looked at me that funny way or they didn't say hi to me. I knew I, they're just jerks. Not only are they jerk, they're always jerks. They're always mean to me. They're, they're mean to other people. They're just selfish people. But see, that's not what the gospel does. The gospel says you need forgiveness. And here's an opportunity to extend forgiveness by assuming the best about this person that you're getting ready to talk to. Love confronts. As one theologian put it, he said, until. And unless Christ is experienced as a living relationship between people, the gospel remains largely an abstraction. Until Christ is passed on personally through faithfulness and forgiveness, through concrete bonds of union, I doubt whether Christ is passed on by words, sermons, institutions, or ideas. Unless Christ is experienced in a living relationship between you and I, all the preaching, all the study, all the reading, all the listening does not matter. But it is through the relationships that God has given you and me right now in real time that we can experience the forgiveness and love of Christ. Love confronts. Love is dependent Fourthly, love is dependent. It's intertwined into each other's lives. When we genuinely love people, it's like we are our lives. The threads of our lives are tied into each other like a like a like a sweater. And so when someone, when we have a rift with someone, it's not just a matter that oh, I'm just going to see them later. So when that friend that I mentioned ago a minute ago, when he just decided to just up and leave, it wasn't a matter that it just disintegrated and there's a hole. No, when love Is genuine between human beings, that person was ripped out of my life because I loved them and I still love them. People just don't merely disintegrate if we're genuinely experiencing love and relationship with each other. They are ripped out of our lives. You see, the tendency in our lives is to run away from people who hurt us. But biblical love is enmeshed into the lives of other people. There's no other way to experience true, genuine love apart from true community. Consider 1 Corinthians 13 that I wrote at the beginning. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not selfish. These are all relational in nature. Love doesn't happen except through relationships with other people. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, wrote this. Maybe to, maybe to get another handle on this. C.S. Lewis wrote this about friendship. He said, In each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into the activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of this friend's facets. Now that Charles, one of his friends, is dead, I shall never again see my friend Richard I will never see him with the same reactions to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Richard, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of him. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition which each of us has of God. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, The more we still have and so CS Lewis was saying now that my friend uh, now that now that my friend Charles is dead I can't experience my friend the same way that I experienced him before because all of us in relationship with each other magnify those personalities of each other God put you in each other's lives to magnify who you are to make you multifaceted And so instead of saying, I can't wait till he's gone so that I can have more of this friend, Lewis is saying, without that friend, I have less of him. There's no way for me to know him in the same way that I knew him when this friend was around. And we see this kind of intertwining, this kind of dependency in verse 12. There was an open door to the gospel in the city of Troas, but Titus wasn't there. So Paul left. Have you considered that? That there was an open door to the gospel. We pray for this, that there be an open door to the gospel. And Paul says, there was. But I didn't go because I didn't have any peace in my heart because Titus wasn't there. Was he being a coward? Was he being unfaithful? No. You see, Paul understood the utter necessity of having his brother with him, of having Titus with him. When Jesus sent out the disciples, how did he send them out? He sent them out by twos. Is that just some kind of nice practical way to send people out? No, I I don't think so. He sent them out as an affirmation of the essential element of the gospel, which is relational in nature. He sent them out two by two so that they would be able to encourage one another. Can you imagine? They would stay in people's houses and they have just preached in the synagogue. And they come back, they've been beaten up, they've been ridiculed, and they come into the house, and Andrew says to Peter, he says, hey Peter, it's alright man, you preached your best, you explained the text to them, and one day they'll understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter says, but Andrew, Andrew, they, they called me a sellout, they said I really didn't believe in the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they said I was a loser, I don't want to go back. They said my father and mother would be ashamed of me. And then Andrew says to him, Peter, you know whom you believed. You know know who sent you out. You know that he's Messiah. You know these things. And so that's why Paul is not going to go into the open door, because he knew that he was going to be beat up. He was going to be ridiculed, and he needed someone else. He needed his brother Titus with him to be able to bear that load together. Fifthly, I think we're on five. Fifthly, love is about other people. 1 Corinthians 13, we've already said that love is patient and kind. You can, you can give away all that you have, but love is others focused. It's looking out from itself. True biblical love looks to the needs of others. And that really is the undergirding principle of all of these points, is that love is about other people. Love is about about serving other people looking to the needs of others not your own needs because we see lastly that love is self-sacrificing see this has been implicit in each of our previous points to show restraint to experience pain to confront to be dependent upon other people this all requires self-sacrifice You know, we've talked about already that there are super apostles that were here in Corinth. They said that Paul was weak and wounded, that God surely was not with him. In fact, he's bearing the marks of being cursed by God. But we'll see in the next five chapters that Paul is showing that this is the way of the gospel. What did Jesus say? He says, if they treat the master this this way, they're going to treat his followers this way. And that's what Paul's saying here, is that this is what ministry The ministry of Jesus looks like. This is what love in Jesus looks like. Love is not glorious. It's not strong. It's not polished and flashy and doesn't flex its muscles. Love looks a lot like Jesus. He's wounded, sore, pained, and suffering. That's what love looks like. Because look at verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. It's a very strange place to go, isn't it? He's talking about forgiveness and love and then all of a sudden he says, but thanks be to God who leads us in triumphal procession. What is he talking about? This verse so many times is taken out of context to say, we have victory in Jesus. That's true. But it's only true after you have died. That... This is the same image that would happen when a Roman conqueror would come and bring in the defeated army. He would lead them in a triumphal procession through the heart of the city. And they would be embarrassed. They would be ridiculed. Sometimes they would be killed in front of everyone to say, Victory has been had by the Romans. And this is the picture that Paul is saying, Look, we are being led in this triumphal procession by Jesus who has conquered us. He's conquered our hearts. He's conquered our sin. And it's through the suffering and dying and ridicule that we experience that we get to share in his sufferings. And in sharing in his sufferings, we also share in his life. That's the glorious gospel. To be freed from ourselves. To be freed from our rights. You see, the gospel, when King Jesus hung on the cross and then was raised again, it's not about merely cosmic principalities and powers. But it is also about defeating all rival kingdoms, including yours and including mine. And it comes through our own destitution our own suffering our own death a display of our need for those who demand signs and wonders it's humiliating to those who want a display of wisdom and power it's foolishness and that is the way of the cross that is the way of love that it gives itself to others and by giving ourselves to each other By giving ourselves to each other, we are showing that our value is found in someone else who gave himself up for us. So what I'd love for us to do before we um, sing in response, I'd love for us to just spend a few moments to consider, and we did this a little bit last week or um, two weeks ago with someone that might need comfort. I I would like for you, if you have a pen or if you just have um your brain just to be able to spend a few moments thinking about who is someone that I can lay down my life for maybe it's that neighbor who's annoying you maybe it's that coworker who just doesn't get it maybe it's your fa- a family member that just grates your nerves but biblical love will lay itself down when it's most uncomfortable we love because he first loved us and how did he love us he gave himself up for us and so friends who would god by his spirit lay on your hearts this morning in a very practical real way i mean this spend a few moments just say there are here's one person that's all one person that i can lay down my life for and love then after a few moments then the uh, musicians will lead us and sing holy holy holy